Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. Really, the Ebert and Roper of the 20th century. <laughs> Not the Siskel and Ebert. No, I, who's the Roper then? Ah, uh, I think it's you, right? <laughs> what? No. You're you're kind of the cool young guy that the kids <laughs> like, and I'm I'm like the seasoned uh, expert. Is Roper still doing movie reviews? Probably. <laughs> no one. We should re- get him on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and and the Important Cinema Club, we talk about important cinema that's is that gonna be our byline from now on uh yeah i guess so like is that gonna be like our cool catchphrase (laughs) yeah sure we're stalling because this is an episode that i've been dreading for literally a whole week we're gonna be talking about akira kurosawa specifically we watched two of his films the bad sleep well and throne of blood i mean this should be easy will it's akira kurosawa like everyone knows him and i've seen all of his films he's a great filmmaker everyone likes um Mm -hmm. yeah akira kurosawa in your life where does he stand I like Akira Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. I think he's a good filmmaker. I think he's a great filmmaker. One yeah. of the greatest, dare I say. Um, I would, I've seen, God, I want to say maybe 10 of his movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw most of them when I was in high school or early university. And I think I feel ashamed of that. <laughs> and this is one of the reasons I actually wanted to talk about him is he's taken this kind of, he's like kind of like a monolith when it comes to filmmakers where people are kind of afraid to watch his movie i wouldn't say that i'm afraid it's more like i take him for granted (laughs) it's like he's he's so obviously great it's like oh yeah kurosawa there he is over there but but if you're getting interested in film you might be more tempted to look at i mean if we're talking about japanese directors it might be like oh there's nagisa oshima Mm -hmm. or there's takeshi katano like if you're really interested in film you might get a little bit sidetracked by those more so you feel that because he's such a great director it's kind of like you know the beatles are great but yeah i want to listen to the other music that people aren't listening to yeah kind of uh and i i think it was the same reason why for a long time i didn't i avoided a lot of john ford mm-hmm. you know not out of any reason but it's just like yeah john ford it's like you know white bread everyone agrees it's 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 fine but wouldn't you want to watch it because one of the reasons that yes. i didn't watch kurosawa <laughs> films was because i'm like oh man they're gonna be like super slow and dull and because you know everyone that knows me i just and because my you're an idiot action apparently <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. Like, I, I need, because I live in the internet generation, Will. I need my fix now. Yeah, we're, we're the uh, MTV generation, or was that the generation before <laughs> I us? I think that was the generation before us. Okay. We're the YouTube generation. No, I don't even think we're that generation. We're all, we're on Twitter and, you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of the reasons when I was, well, I mean, I grew up in a small French town. We didn't have video stores that would stock Kira Kurosawa films. No theaters were playing them. That's something that I only discovered afterwards in college. Roger's video, when I was in high school, uh, which is where I rented most of my movies, had a small foreign section that had Throne of Blood, Yojimbo, mm-hmm. Senjuro, Seven Samurai, and maybe like one other one. And at the time, were you like, whoa, 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 I'm not seeing it unless it's in Letterbox? Yes, I was. <laughs> Did you? And they, they had the Criterion Collection editions of those films. Uh, and you know, On VHS? On DVD. Oh, so on DVD. I kind of fancied myself a bit of a cinephile. Mm-hmm. So of course, I was doing kind of the... Uh, world cinema for beginners tour of Mm -hmm. you know bergman and fellini and that sort of thing and yeah i saw some of his movies when they played at the cinematheque at a Mm -hmm. retrospective and then yeah that was it lost touch with it and i feel awful about that because he's a great filmmaker and i should see more of him i just remembered you talking about that now that my brother is actually the one that when Criterion put out that big box set of Kurosawa films, do you remember that? It was like... Yes, AK like yeah. 100 yeah. for his 100th anniversary, where it had literally all of his movies. And my brother bought that giant box set. How much was it? I don't remember. Oh. It must have been hundreds of dollars. But he... 
out of me and him, he's the one who fancies himself an intellectual. So that's like the kind of stuff that he would do while he would look at the other movies that I would be watching and he'd be like, Godzilla. He sounds a bit of a dilettante though. Like Kurosawa, pretty uncreative. (laughs) Oh, so you're saying that in your world, he's like, where's the Yoshima box set? It's so mainstream, you know? (laughs) And that's something about Kurosawa that I also wanted to bring up is that reading about him to do this podcast and even before that back when he was making movies, his like seven samurai was a huge hit. Yes. If you're talking about films, of course I were made. And he was a big, as were many of his films in Japan. So he was like a blockbuster director. Could we say maybe a Steven Spielberg, if you will? I don't see why not, because in the 80s, he had a comeback thanks to the advocacy of people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola, the latter two of whom produced his movie Kagamusha. And did you hear they were actually pretty disappointed about the end result of Kagamusha? Oh, wow. Ingrates? (laughs) (laughs) They don't understand brilliance when they see it. It's a good movie, but it kind of gets eclipsed by Ron. Uh, The first one we should talk about, Throne of Blood, that actually came out after Seven Samurai. So this is him kind of repositioning himself from kind of the pop filmmaking of Seven Samurai. If you say so, I don't know. (laughs) What am I, some Japanese scholar? Yeah. (laughs) Will's just shaking his head. Will, I've said this before, on this podcast, we have to put our foot down on things. (laughs) We can't be wishy-washy. We have to say opinions, whether they be fact or fiction, and we just get right behind them. All right. But like, well, if you look at something like Seven Samurai or Sanjuro or Yojimbo, those are, or even the Hidden Fortress. That's actually the one that I wanted to mention. When I got Which uh, was l- later inspired Star Wars. Yeah. Well, that is if like... If I can give you a really overused <laughs> fact. <laughs> that is like... Um, those are adventure films, right? And yes. when I would think of Kurosawa when I was first getting into him, it was like, oh man, like, these are not going to be fun. Which is completely beside the point. Why would you think that? They've got samurais. <laughs> yeah, but... From everything that I had seen from Kurosawa, it was... I mean, Seven Samurai, let's be honest, it's, what, three and a half hours long? It's long. And it is slow in the conventional sense, but it's one of those slows where there's nothing is wasted on screen. Mm -hmm. You never feel like, why is this scene here? Or why is this happening? Mm -hmm. And Throne of Blood, to add insult to injury for my young self watching these Kurosawa films, a Shakespeare adaptation. Hack. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, is that what you thought when you saw no. Throne of Blood? No, I, I liked Throne of Blood. Uh, Throne of Blood is great, too, because it was based on a story I already knew, so it was very easy to follow. Oh, okay. <laughs> because <laughs> is that how you approach cinema? That you're like, whoa, 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 I better read the book or I'm going to get completely lost. Uh, no, it's like, you know, I like stories that I already know, and I don't I don't like to go to the movies to read. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so what did you think about Throne of Blood watching it with fresh eyes today? I think it's a great movie. <laughs> That's all you have to say about Throne? Uh, I think it is a uh, thing about Akira Kurosawa is one reason why he's such a great and popular director is he is an actually he is actually an accessible director. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that I mean, it's incorrect to say that his movies aren't subtle because there's a a lot about them that is subtle, but they're They're pretty in your face. Like there a lot of it is in your face and Mm -hmm. the ideas that he's getting across are very kind of clearly and articulately expressed. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult for me to talk about these movies in a way that doesn't resort to platitudes and banalities and cliches. I mean, it's a very powerful expression of the key themes in one of Shakespeare's plays. So are you a Shakespeare head? What do they call them? I mean, I'm someone... A Stratfordian? (laughs) I took two Shakespeare classes in university, and I passed both of them, and I cannot comment on this at all. I like Shakespeare. Yes. I I appreciate him yeah. as a talent. 
Yes, he's good. I like I like some of his plays. <laughs> Only some of his plays. I like hot take. Uh, I think there are some comedies in there that are a little dodgy. Um, so Throne of Blood, great movie. I really enjoy um, its kind of gothic underpinnings. Doing a little bit of research, it seems to come from the no tradition of um, stagecraft. Uh, N-O-H. N-O-H, yeah. I think it's no, is how you say it, which comes before Kabuki. And that's all I have to say about that because (laughs) I have never experienced it before. And as far as Shakespeare adaptation goes, it's interesting to watch. It doesn't have the staginess of a lot of things that you would expect. Like I said, those gothic underpinings are really fun. Well, I mean, he really kind of boils the text down a little Mm -hmm. bit. It's only about 109 minutes, so Mm -hmm. you don't get the porter or... (laughs) (laughs) All the other fun parts from Macbeth. Yeah, uh... it it kind of strips it down to a bit of its essence. It's also, and again, you know, here, here we are resorting to banality and cliche, but like visually... Really good. I mean, the people want the banality and cliche. Will. Few, few people are better visually than Kurosawa. I think of the the scene at the end of the movie. Uh, spoiler alert: Macbeth dies. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in the in the play, um, the prophecy to Macbeth is that he will not fall. He he will not fall at the hands of anyone of woman born, mm-hmm. and he won't fall until Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I got those those names right, the Shakespeare heads are going to be all over you. Will the movie gets rid of the of the idea of you know Macduff being uh, untimely ripped from his mother's womb, mm-hmm. and it sh- it actually shows the forest movie. kind of ascending on yeah. him because the army is cam- camouflage camouflage yeah. themselves with the trees, mm-hmm. and the image is such a powerful image, such a such a distinctly cinematic image that it's something that. Like, it, it, it could not be in any other medium. Mm-hmm. I was blown away again by the way that Kurosawa uses the camera. There's something very austere, but also very precise about the way he uses the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I gather he's famous for is his use of his use of the axial cut, which is not really, not really moving the camera on like a dolly, but sort of slowly zooming mm-hmm. in and then zooming out on the characters. The scene at the midpoint of the movie where, I don't know, let's call him Macbeth. Macbeth is at the feast and he sees the ghost. The way the camera kind of dances around him in that scene Mm -hmm. or slowly moves around him, almost as if it's an impartial observer Mm -hmm. that's just sort of fascinated by him. And, you know, the way that he uses uh, he uses space in every in every frame the way he uses lighting it looks like as some people said about his work it looks like a charcoal drawing Mm -hmm. well do looking into the technicalities of how that he would set up these um frames for someone who has movies that are so well composed i was very surprised that he would shoot with multiple cameras three to four cameras and because his particular style of filmmaking was using the telephoto lens for people who don't know when you use a telephoto lens and you zoom in it flattens the image think of when you see a baseball game and you see the the batter and the pitcher and when they're zoomed in they look like they're really close to each other and that's what happened the kurosawa films which gives it that painterly quality of everything being on the same plane but when i hear something like oh he shoots to three to four cameras at a time that makes me think of someone who doesn't know what they want and are going to figure it out later well that's funny because i watched chris marker's documentary ak mm-hmm. where he talks about the fact that he'll do an hour of rehearsal with his actors and then do just one take Oh, which that's makes crazy. me or well, that was at least when he made the film Ron, mm-hmm. which I think shows somebody who actually does really know what he wants. It I think that the multiple camera thing comes more from him wanting to capture this 
perfect moment from multiple angles and not have to get the same performance. It's the reverse. It's kind of like the ultimate thing that directors want is catching that kind of spark in a performance. Yeah. As opposed to refining it down until you have the perfect performance. Let's do a bit of a biographical sketch of this guy, Kurosawa. He was born in 1910 in Japan. This is what I found out when I watched a YouTube documentary about him. Uh, He was a movie buff growing up, just like Quentin Tarantino. So hashtag this episode, Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) And... Uh, one of the surprising things is that uh, Kurosawa is a big Western movie buff, and a lot of his films reflect that kind of love for Western filmmaking. John Ford, in particular, you can. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I don't think uh, it's a new insight to say that there's a big, big influence of the Western genre on his films, which again got regurgitated when Yojimbo and Sanjuro were remade by Sergio Leone. As or Westerns. when Seven uh, Samurai was re- remade as... as the Ridiculous Six by Adam Sandler. <laughs> Yes, that is correct. Uh, but he, he loved film. And his brother, uh, in Japan in the silent era, they had live narrators at mm-hmm. the movie theaters who would narrate the films. And his brother was a live narrator who, at the dawn of sound, basically lost his job, lost his work, and committed suicide. Oof. So that's, that's pretty sad. <laughs> yeah, that's sad. And so from there... From there, he he loved film, and he was passionate about film, and he rose through the ranks at Toho Studios, which mm-hmm. was the major studio in Japan, uh, eventually being able to direct his own films. The first of which was Sanchiro Sugata from 1943. It was a very popular film in Japan, Mm -hmm. as were a number of his earlier movies. And it wasn't until 1950 with a little movie called Rashomon that Mm -hmm. you may have heard of that he had his international breakthrough. Did you ever hear how that happened? That it kind of slipped through the cracks that it played at a film festival? The studio didn't think it was very good, but the Venice Film Festival thought that it was really something. So submitted it there and it ended up winning the Golden Lion. Mm-hmm. And it ended up having a very successful run in America where it was distributed by RKO, I think. Did you ever hear the weird anecdote that it was actually remade in America too? N- no, I don't know this. Yeah, it was remade shockingly as a Western in 1964 under the name The Outrage. And it was uh, directed by Martin Ritt, who's a guy that I, I, every time I see his name, I'm like, oh, I should know his name more than that. But he's one who never really got that popular he directed the front the movie about the hollywood blacklist starring woody Woody allen Allen. yeah that one i have seen (laughs) uh but i think for most of the americans who saw rashomon in its first run it probably would have been the first japanese film they'd ever seen Mm -hmm. i've heard it said that it was a good movie for the american market because there wasn't all that much dialogue in it compared to some other japanese it's a story yeah it's a story that's shown very visually Mm -hmm. I guess another reason why he's a good director is because even though his movies have kind of big accessible ideas, they're not pedagogic in any way Mm -hmm. or they're not didactic. They're expressed very visually in Rashomon, you know, the forest is this incredibly atmospheric place and, you know, with the sunshine and then the early, the wraparound scenes of the rain is so enormously atmospheric. I mean, I read the anecdote that he was one of the first directors to point his camera directly at the sun. I've heard that too. And to use lens flares. I consciously did not say that because it was so cliche. (laughs) So this episode has to be called Akira Kurosawa as a cliche, right? (laughs) Yeah, let's do that. Um, So, and after Rashomon, it was basically success for a long time. We're in the money. (laughs) In Throne of Blood, how did you feel about Toshiro Mifune? Uh, 
Toshiro Mifune, he's such a charismatic presence as an actor. Mm -hmm. But seeing something like that, like if I saw it when it came out or even not knowing films that much, you would assume that it's a very hammy performance. This is another thing that I think fascinated audiences when they first saw Rashomon, not just because the film was sort of exotic with the costumes and the period Japanese setting. The style of acting, which I don't know, I'm going to say probably uh, comes from a tradition that includes Kabuki. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Uh, write in and tell me if I'm wrong. Um, yeah. Point Cinema Club Podcast it, at gmail.com. It's so kind of exaggerated and emotional and seemingly hammy. Mm-hmm that it would have, I think, taken people aback. It still takes me aback when I see Toshiro Mifune. I know, I know I'm not alone. Which, you know, if we look at the other film, before we get back into the history, uh, The Bad Sleep Well, which also stars Toshiro Mifune, he is not doing his hammy, ham-fisted Mifune. No, but he's still a very strong presence. I mean, it's almost impossible for Mifune to be anything but that leading man. Toshiro Mifune, by the way, for those who don't know, and I'm sure you do, was his uh, Kurosawa's Bobby De Niro. He was his... <laughs> leading man for many years until they had uh, an unfortunate falling out during the making of Redbeard. Have you read about what it was? I read the biography that Stuart Galbraith's The Force wrote. I think it's The Emperor and the Wolf. And he really gets into, because it's a biography about uh, both Mifune and Kurosawa side by side as they went through their mm-hmm. lives. And there's never really a breaking point. Uh, where there was like a big argument or something. I've heard it alluded to in the documentary that I watched, mm. uh, Kurosawa, The Last Emperor, mm-hmm. that Kurosawa is a very possessive director. Mm. So on Redbeard, you know, many of his actors would do other jobs during the year. But on Redbeard, uh, Mifune had to grow an actual long beard for the role, which kept him out of being in other movies, which meant that he accumulated debts. So... Uh, Clearly, well, Kurosawa reached the point in his career, like I use the word monolith, where like his movies are so important and they're going to be so big that nothing else can go around. And he those kind of slights, he would push people away completely. Like the cinematographer of uh, The Bad Sleep Well is the guy that also made Godzilla vs. Megalon and a bunch of Godzilla movies later on in his career. And the reason that he only ever was a cinematographer on The Bad Sleep Well is supposedly Kurosawa heard him talking behind his back about him. And because of that, he never worked with him again. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Andre Konchalovsky uh, tells us... Uh, oh, uh, made... the director of Tango and Cash and, and Runaway Train. And The Nutcracker in 3D. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tells a, do- a story in the documentary of uh, the two of them were having a conversation about Lenin and Kurosawa saying that he thought Lenin was really great and had a lot of good ideas. And, and Konchalovsky saying, uh, no, he wasn't great. I've lived in Russia. I know he's a murderer. And Kurosawa getting extremely angry and like banging his fist about that. I heard the same anecdote very similar about Laurence Olivier who had contact with Kurosawa about doing a Shakespeare play. And Laurence Olivier had some idea about maybe expanding on the text. And Kurosawa was so insulted by that that he just cut all communication off with Olivier. And this leads maybe to what for a while was his career downfall, which was the uh, the making of Tora, 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 the mm-hmm. terrible Hollywood war movie, which when it was announced, it was going to be tell the story of the bombing of Pearl Harbor from the perspective of both the Japanese side and the American side. It was going to be Kurosawa directing the Japanese side and David Lean originally directing the American side. Uh, that's what lured Kurosawa to it. But then they replaced David Lean with Richard Fleischer. Uh, the great Richard. Richard Fleischer's <laughs> made some fun movies. He's fine. Yeah. He's done decent movies. He's in no way a visionary or nah. anything. He's like a studio journeyman. Yeah. So Kurosawa felt a little bit insulted by that. And he felt a little bit insulted by the fact that 
the the Hollywood studio system no longer or the Hollywood studio system at that time didn't really have respect for the director as the author. So eventually, even though the studio then tried to make things better for him, he sort of disengaged at that point and ended up being fired. Yeah, but Kurosawa was never a guy that could really work under the kind of studio system because in Japan, he basically had his own unit. Mm-hmm. Like he controlled, he could take as much time as he wanted and he could get things right. Like there's a book that his script supervisor wrote. I don't remember the exact title. It's something like waiting for the clouds to get in the <laughs> right position where they would just sit sometimes for days waiting to get that one shot. Cause once he reached that position, he could just do whatever he wanted. And it's funny because do you know who they replaced Kurosawa with on Tora Tora Tora? Kinji Fukasaku, the director of Battle Royale. Oh, and okay. uh, the Battle Without Honors Humanities. Wow. I didn't actually know that. Yeah. And Battles Without Arm- uh, Honors and Humanities, recently released by Arrow Films. Please send me a copy, Arrow Films. It's yeah, really no, expensive. Can you send it to me, too? I, I, I was reading about it the other day. It looks amazing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so after Tor Tor Tor, he kind of had a weird decline period. I mean, there were several factors, uh, not just that, but the fact that uh, the Japanese film industry was in decline due to TV. Mm-hmm. And uh, his film, Dodeska Dan, mm-hmm. an atypical film for him, set in a garbage dump or mm. uh, where a slum had emerged it was not a success yeah i believe it was his first color film wasn't it It was and it's a beautiful mm-hmm. film i mean uh, you know nobody shot better in black and white and nobody shot better in color after that but it was not a success and he ended up attempting suicide mm-hmm. because he felt that uh, he would never be able to make a movie again mm. fortunately uh he was not successful at that and ended up directing dersa uzula for the Soviet Union, which was a bit of a comeback, and then Kagamusha and Ron in the 80s, which were a major comeback. And Let's Not Forget Dreams, and Martin Scorsese starring... Uh... Yeah, yeah, Martin Scorsese in it as Vincent van Gogh. And, yep. uh, and actually, if you're, if you're wondering what my relationship is to Kurosawa, aside from not having much of one, uh, I saw his last film, Matadayo, at the Cinematheque when it played in 2010. And it's really weird because Matadayo is nobody's favorite Kurosawa movie, Mm -hmm. but it was the one that really moved me like in a very deep way, in a way that movies don't often move me. It was the story of it is about uh, a retiring professor, a beloved professor uh, who has a part, a retirement party when he's 60 or 65. Uh, All his students are there and he, has this opening party scene that's it's almost as long as the wedding scene in the deer hunter and he chugs this enormous glass of beer just mm-hmm. in one gulp and he yells ma da dio which means not yet yeah and then you see some other stuff happens in the movie but then at the end of the movie you see him 20 years later spoiler okay he's <laughs> in his yeah I, I might reveal the end of the movie <laughs> He's in his 80s. Kurosawa films, you don't, you can know the story. Yeah. It's about the experience. <laughs> he's in his 80s and he's at, they're doing, they do the same party again. They've done this party every year and every year he's had the gulp of beer and he said Matadayo. But at this one, he, he says, he sees the glass and it's a small glass and he says, oh, the glass gets smaller for me every year. And then he gulps the beer with some difficulty and then he goes, Matadayo. And the way he says that line is different than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, it was like, yeah, not yet. And then 20 years later, it's please not yet. Yeah. And something about that transition just, I found incredibly powerful. I was reading an essay that Kurosawa's career actually took a really interesting pass of what interested him as a filmmaker, where at the beginning of his career, he kind of did life-affirming movies 
like um, during World War II, he did one about, I don't even remember the title, about like a um, factory worker and how she kind of pulled through during the wartime and stuff like <laughs> sure. that. And then as he went on, he kind of got into like Ran and Kagamusha are very nihilistic films. Yeah. Well, the, the people who don't like... Uh, the bad sleep well mm-hmm. because even though it's widely considered a masterpiece it's also considered lesser kurosawa from the time mm-hmm. uh could you describe the plot of that segment? so the bad sleep well it I, I it's funny that i made a joke that you don't need the story of the bad sleep well but the bad sleep well is structured in a way that if you go in not knowing what's going on you're not going to know for 45 minutes i had happening. a hard time following it <laughs> so the bad sleep well the basis is toshiro mafune goes undercover um at a company to he marries um it's just so complicated i'm trying to it's struggle a, it's a it. corrupt company in, in post-war yeah. japan yeah a, uh toshiro mufune marries into a corrupt company in japan to blackmail and eventually kill the people that are responsible for his father's death because this company is so powerful that basically it's had the ability to kill or force people to commit suicide Mm -hmm. to protect itself from any charges of corruption like i've seen the film compared like uh in blurs be like kurosawa does mad men and i don't know what they're (laughs) talking about well that's just that's just hack (laughs) yeah but i think the people who don't like the movie argue that at that time kurosawa was telling these stories of heroic man you know exceptional ideal man and to a certain extent to shiro mufuni plays a variation of that in this movie but the people who don't like the movie suggest that there's some something that's hard to something that can't be reconciled with the fact that you have this heroic man in a story about endless corruption Mm -hmm. but the movie presents itself as maybe this corruption could eventually be eliminated these people can be arrested and spoiler that doesn't happen Uh and uh, the movie takes great pains in its final moments to kind of put in your face that Toshiro Mifune who seems like he's going to win and save the day Mm -hmm. he's planned this out perfectly and things go wrong off screen Mm -hmm. (laughs) almost as if Kurosawa is taking away the kind of expected dramatic narrative from this story and kind of presenting it to you very coldly. Mm. Do, you, do you want to talk about the first 30 minutes, the wedding scene? Yeah, which the, is the amazing deer hunter scene. style <laughs> wedding slash exposition scene. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I'm not even sure if I can just say say what happens in it. It's 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 so a wedding is going on of the head honcho of this corrupt company. Mm-hmm. His daughter's getting married and Toshiro Mifune is marrying his daughter. That doesn't matter. He does nothing in these first 30 minutes. <laughs> and so they're basically it's clear that something's going down. Arrests are going to be made so during during this wedding where speeches are being made the media is coming in the cops are coming in yeah and it's it's like it's complex in a way that's similar to the godfather's opening wedding scene i said that watching it it almost seems like he's trying to do a ballet type situation because he has this swarm of bodies just moving from one side to the other and he has this classical music playing at also at the same time Plus, he's setting up all of these characters Mm because the reporters and cops are commenting on what's going on. People are making speeches Mm -hmm. and they're setting it up for the viewer to understand what's going to happen for the rest of the movie, which is fairly episodic, Mm -hmm. where you see Toshiro Mufune slowly break down these men that work for this corrupt company. So the movie is actually, it's fairly fast paced once you get into it. Mm -hmm. And especially you're interested in what's going on, especially if you go in not knowing what the plot is, which we've just spoiled for you. And when you watch the film, if you haven't yet, you'll know. Even though when you listen to the important cinema club, we don't expect you to watch these movies. Yeah, you're just here to hang out with us. We (laughs) um, paint a word story for you. (laughs) And so you, you you know, theater of the mind. If we do our job right, you don't have to watch the movie. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) 
To, I, I think that's a... a bold claim? It, it's not a very humble statement to say about Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> arguably one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. <laughs> so what did you think? I know that you had a little bit of difficulty figuring out what was going on, but by the end, how, were you emotionially invested in what was in Bad Sleep Well? Or? Um, I don't feel that I was emotionally invested mm. in it. I would say that I was entertained by it. Mm-hmm. It was. I thought it was a fun movie. It had kind of a muckraking, like, uh, pulpy quality to it that I enjoyed. And talking about where you said that um, Kurosawa is not a very subtle director. This one is fairly didactic in the way things are presented. Yeah, and I, I liked... I liked that about it. I liked that, you know, there's the scene where Toshiro Mifune dangles the guy out of the window. Like, the the enormous power of Toshiro Mifune just as a screen presence and the really dramatic lighting in that scene made it look like made it look like a good comic book. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> you did. Know? It has a very stark... Uh, it, it's yeah. like the closest Kurosawa seems to have gotten to, like, noir filmmaking. Yeah. Or even taking... Um, it's kind of like a precursor to the, like, Nikatsu kind of, yeah. like, genre films that would come later on. Except in this case, they are... This movie is, like, two and a half hours long mm-hmm. because Kurosawa could do that kind of stuff at the time. Yeah. Do you think that's an issue with the director that he gets too big for his britches? I think it's an issue with uh, Quentin Tarantino, maybe. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know. I wouldn't say it's necessarily an issue with with uh, Kurosawa, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, I think I think it's an issue for anyone where they. <laughs> I'm trying to get you to be like, man, Kurosawa is a piece of shit. No, he's great. Uh, I think it's an issue for anyone though when they get to the point where nobody's saying no to them, and no one is saying no to Kurosawa for a long part of his career. Yeah, although he kept making good movies, mm-hmm. so that's true. But it almost uh, maybe that's one of the reasons that led kind of to his decline is that no one is saying no. That any <laughs> failure just kind of is the end for him. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Hey, no, not maybe. Like I said at yes. the beginning, it's yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Fun fact. Who was Akira Kurosawa's best friend? Ishiro Honda. Director of? Godzilla. And? Godzilla vs. Uh, King Kong. And? Uh, Godzilla Godzilla versus Mothra. Uh, go- the Terror of Mechagodzilla. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Space Amoeba. <laughs> they, they, were, they were very close friends. Uh, later in his life, after he retired from filmmaking, Ishiro Honda basically went full-time to work with kurosawa as assistant director on some of his films and i believe even directed a segment of dreams Mm -hmm. and uh kurosawa has talked about that he has had no problems claiming that some of the most dynamic and interesting parts of his early films he credits that to shiro honda like famously stray dog the montage that happens in that movie where uh mifune goes looking for his gun he says that that was all shiro honda doing that Mm. and shiro honda is a great director who was just sort of pigeonholed at an early time because you know that was that's the, that's the climate when you're in a studio system you get pigeonholed in something and you get assigned to those projects unless you're Akira Kurosawa yeah that's I mean we we have to do our own Godzilla episode in the future oh we will <laughs> but Shiro Honda you know to just talk about him briefly it is really sad that he did get pigeonholed into those Godzilla films because you can see like you watch Godzilla like that is a masterpiece the first one the yeah. first one is a masterpiece but as he goes on you can feel him getting less and less interested in what he's doing mm-hmm. and it'd be curious to see if we could somehow make an alternate universe of Ishiro Honda doing passion projects what they would look like did you know that Ishiro Honda's funeral was the site of the reconciliation between Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune I did not know that this is something I learned today it wasn't quite a rec- reconciliation fully I, I don't think they ever had a full reconciliation they were estranged for many years but they were both at the funeral studiously avoiding eye contact with each other and then they accidentally did make eye contact 
contact with each other and they started weeping and they hugged. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I remember re- in the Emperor and the Wolf book, there's an anecdote of Akira Kurosawa kind of walking and Mufune kind of following behind him. <laughs> and every time Kurosawa would kind of turn around, Mufune would like bow and apologize. <laughs> and it's just, it's that weird place where like two people have been apart for so long that they don't know how to kind of like reconnect. Mm-hmm. And later A regular on... Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Kurosawa. <laughs> the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis of Japan. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, that's what on, we should call our episode. <laughs> in the in the during their career, Kurosawa, as later projects came up, he used to say like, "Oh, Mifune would be good for this project, but he's busy or it's not working out." So it's not like they were like hated enemies until the end. But, but he also would kind of uh, slag him off in interviews at times, mm-hmm. saying that some of his acting work wasn't very good or. I mean, if you look at kind of the choices Mifune made uh, later on in his career. Sadoichi meets Yojimbo. <laughs> um, or how about uh, Red Sun with Charles Bronson? Also, he turned down a little movie called Star Wars where he was where he was offered Obi-Wan Kenobi. What, what would that movie be if... I would have been Star Wars with Toshiro Mifune, I guess, if you can picture that in your head. Well, I've seen Kinju Fukusaku's Message from Space, <laughs> which doesn't star Toshiro Mifune, but stars his... Uh, B-movie equivalent, Sony Chiba. Oh, so him. I think I have a pretty good idea of what it looks like. <laughs> I mean, what would the Matrix look like if Chiring Fat had been cast as Morpheus? Uh, it would have been better, probably, yeah. <laughs> whoa, 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 hot take. Yeah. Who do you think is the Kurosawa of today, Will? Oh, my God. I can't believe you're asking me this. Um, uh, Michael Bay, I think. <laughs> Because he's a blockbuster filmmaker who who has his own Speaks distinct editing style, yeah, yeah. and uh, deals with heroic men. Can you imagine a hundred years from now, people are treating Michael Bay like they treat Kurosawa today? I mean, some already do. I mean, have you been seeing some of the hot takes about Benghazi? Uh, that that uh, <laughs> I wish that in your life that you get frozen and wake up a hundred years in the future, horrified at what. Uh... I mean, you know, that that's fine. I mean, it's symptomatic of a society where Trump will be president. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, you being frozen and waking up on No, years? no, Michael Bay being uh, esteemed. Well, you haven't seen Benghazi, so you can't I, make I'm your... seeing it later tonight, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so check it. Send us an email thinking if you think Michael Bay is as good as Akira Kurosawa. On next week, I will report back to you with my opinion about Benghazi. All right, tying it back to this episode. Yeah. It'll be a little bonus section of the <laughs> yeah. podcast. Um, so Kurosawa, no one is as good as him my new year's resolution is to watch more more akira i will see akiru a movie that i have never seen oh akiru is a fantastic film what's it about it's about uh the guy oh it's (laughs) a guy (laughs) it's about takashi shimura who was in godzilla um (laughs) he plays a aging man who's dying of cancer and he decides that he's going to try to make a difference but kind of like the bad sleep well, it's really uh, interestingly structured in that he learns this, makes a decision to be a better person, and then it cuts to his funeral, and people talk about what he did. Hmm. So you get it in like a flashback structure that's filling in the details of his life. All right, I'll see it. <laughs> I convinced you to see Akira Kurosawa's Akira, one of the movies that is considered the best of all time. I'm in, yeah, I'm interested to see what this young up-and-comer can do. You should check out Citizen Kane next. I hear that's really good, too. Ah, uh, I never heard of it. My name's Justin the Clue. My name's Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I mean, have a good night. <laughs> we did it. to get them on his side or to reveal stuff that would be able to lead to an indictment. 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 <laughs> <laughs>